Hey, Sound Opinions listeners, if you support us on Patreon, you get to listen to our podcast ad-free on Patreon. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and this week we explore the music, life, and legacy of Lou Reed. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. We'll talk with the author of the book Lou Reed, the King of New York, Will Hermes. Let's get to it. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.com. Edu slash podcast. You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and we'd like to welcome the author of Lou Reed, the King of New York, Will Hermes. Will, welcome to Sound Opinions. Good to be uh, with you guys, my uh, my Midwest compatriots. <laughs> it's true. Former Minneapolitan. Uh, I wrote for yes. Will back at, at City Pages, yes? And spin City maybe? Pages, back yeah. in the day, rest mm-hmm. in peace. Yeah, uh, alternative press. Well, we know how Will has spent his last 10 years, Jim. <laughs> we do, uh, more or less. It's finally here. Um, uh, and, and a hell of a, look, this is, yeah. boom, that's a big book. It's a big book. Uh, there's been a lot written about the Velvets and Lou in recent decades. I know, Will, you've gotten this question a lot, but this seems to be an attempt to, to write the definitive biography. What was your motivation uh, for starting a book of this scope? Well, I guess uh, certainly uh, being a Velvet Underground fanatic was a big part of it. Really reading all the stuff that's out there, and there is a lot of good stuff out there. I mean, we're sitting... A lot of bad stuff out there, though, too, <laughs> Will. <laughs> there is there's a lot of bad stuff. But, you know, I got to say... Almost every volume that I went through, and boy, did I go through a lot of volumes, um, had something, you know, about it. Because I don't think anybody writes a book unless, like, you have some spark that drives you, even if it's just money, I guess. Mm. But uh, it's just, it's hard. It takes a long time. And, you know, I wanted to write the book that I wanted to read, ultimately, which involved 
you know, drawing stuff from all over the place, like little websites and fanzines and these kind of ridiculously detailed reference volumes that I got into, but I knew a general reader, um, even if they were a Lou Reed fan, wouldn't necessarily want that much data. So, But I wanted to sort of boil it down into something that had like a nice narrative arc that told the story of a life and uh, that you could read as a story, a compelling story of a great American an artist who was a complicated human, but if you were a total fanboy, fangirl nerd, you could also like uh, dig out some some good details and mm-hmm. spend some time in the eighty pages of endnotes uh, for people who are really hardcore. No, it is a hardcore work of biography of journalism. Um, let's talk about those fans. <laughs> <laughs> you had access to Reed's archives. Right. Which Laurie Anderson donated uh, to where, where is it again? The New York Public Library? Yeah, the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts, mm-hmm. which is a branch that's located in Lincoln Center. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really great. And their their collection is just growing by leaps and bounds every year. And uh, the uh, materials available to anybody who goes in there. I mean, yeah. you have to, like, go into the special collections room and fill out a thing, but you, if you have a library card and anyone can get one, yeah. um, it's available. So I, I thought that was very cool. Well, Laurie... there are some great anecdotes, uh, Will, that you tell, uh, in particular in one section of the book, about looking at those uh, fan letters, and they invariably begin, you write, uh, I've never written a fan letter before, and some of them are worshipful. And one thing Reed once said to me is, it's very dangerous dangerous when people become too much of a super fan of you. He was talking about uh, Robert Quine and Lester Bangs at the time. But mm-hmm. um, wow, there were people who, you know, you saved my life, like Janie and rock and roll. I had a life saved by rock and roll, I had a life saved by Lou Reed. And then there were people who I didn't kill myself because of you. I started shooting heroin because of you. <laughs> I've thought about killing yeah. myself because of you. And, and like, Wow. Uh, it seemed like as extreme as his music was, so was so were the people who followed him. It was fascinating. I mean, I, you know, I spent days going through the fan mail because there was so much. And this was, you know, the era before email. So it was all on paper and cards, letters, people sending fan art. It was just fascinating. I mean, it was beautiful um, because for someone to see the effect their work, their art can have on a person in a positive way has got to be great. But it was also scary mm-hmm. because not only were there people whose lives were derailed, there weren't a lot of things blaming him for their woes, but there were people that were obsessed with him to the point where it was kind of a stalkerish vibe. And it gave me an understanding, I think, of celebrity and how scary it can be to be in the public eye, especially if you're somebody like Reed who liked to go and walk the dog and walk to a restaurant. He lived in New York. He was on foot. He didn't have a chauffeur or a bodyguard often. Mm-hmm. So... uh so, yeah, you're, you realize you're vulnerable, and maybe some of his legendary bitchiness came from... Came from that. Well, you know, yeah, and he'd lived through seeing uh, his former mentor, Andy Warhol, shot. You know, um, he, yes. he was well aware of the dangers. Formative, a formative event in his life, for sure.
comes the dawning It's just a restless feeling By my side And I think the whole ethos of that scene was it was about the art and about creating and pushing the boundaries and you know, just scraping by financially, like it wasn't about being necessarily a, a famous, well-paid star in whatever medium they were working in. It, it, it was completely a different attitude towards making stuff that was cool and different. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons the Velvets are still revered to this day, because they sort of embodied that from a musical standpoint. So that, that seems to me to be key to Lou the rest of his career. And only later do we see Lou kind of paying attention to the bottom line. Like, oh, I need to sell some more records in order that I can make another one, right? Yeah. But it took him a long time to get to that place where he started now, thinking about that stuff. Sunday mornings on the first album, they wanted that to be a pop hit. Yeah, but it's a freaking perverse song, too. It's well, like, he, didn't, you know, he never wrote one that wasn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> It's all the streets you cross not so long ago. Watch out, the world's behind you. Totally. I mean, people listen to those uh, those early demos. They listen to the you know the first acetates. They were just like. You're insane. Like, who would put this out? But they had Warhol as their mentor. And, of course, Warhol was a man who was into pushing aesthetic boundaries. But that dude got paid. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. he came out of advertising. I yeah. mean, he wanted, he needed to get paid. So he was doing both things at the same time. But it was his, uh, you know, his imprimatur, um, his, his uh, role as producer, Mm-hmm. quotes on the first album that allowed the Velvets to make a record like that because basically he just said you know keep all the <laughs> keep all the dirty words right. keep all the the nasty scenarios um don't let them change your lyrics just do it well so. this was a point Lester Banks though made too will is that that Warhol presence, even though he didn't do much producing, right? Just just his endorsement said two things. It said, A, this is capital A art, right? Yep. This is not kid stuff. And B, this is adult. This is something that can get you through your entire life because it is capital A art. It's not just uh, stuff for sticky-fingered kids. Right. And that was that was a new idea. Mm -hmm. I mean, these guys in the Velvets, the men and women of the Velvets, put out, you know, recorded that record before Sgt. Pepper came out. Mm -hmm. People were didn't didn't have any context, really, for rock music as something that trafficked in ideas for adults. It was kid stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, um, one of the ideas that I thought you put forth in the book that was interesting to me, because I often thought of Bowie this way, like he was um, playing a character in all of his records, right, all of his songs, not a new revelation. But I never thought of Lou that way. Um, but, you know, it kind of fits. I think there was the description, like he's kind of a dramaturge, you know, he's setting up a play, you know, in each one of his records. Oh, I got the quote here. Yeah. I created Lou Reed. <laughs> I have nothing even faintly in common with that guy, but yeah. I can play him really well. Yeah. 
I it, love that quote. Yeah, yeah. and there of... and there are a lot of similar quotes to that. One one that I'm just paraphrasing to the effect of, "I can play Lou Reed really well. I'm sometimes eighty percent that guy. I'm sometimes twenty percent that guy, mm-hmm. but I'm never a hundred percent that guy." Mm. And another one where he said, "Like, yeah, I you know I like to see my." my role as a playwright and you know i create these characters and then i step into them mm-hmm. and then i step out of them mm-hmm. well people wanted to think that he's shooting up heroin pretending to shoot up heroin on stage he's that guy that's his life and you know to a degree it was true but you know he he exponentially <laughs> amplified <laughs> wired it up yeah. right um, yeah. So that's yeah. The uh, line got pretty blurry. The line got blurry at a certain point between <laughs> the character and uh, the reality. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, maybe in his mind too. Well, he was not a nice man. This needs to be said, and you don't sugarcoat that. Tales of his rudeness were legion, you write. And he had a privileged celebrity sense of entitlement. Lou wanted his perks, right? There's a lot of damaged people in his wake. You know, Robert Quine, the guitarist who did so much brilliant, uh, really, the blue mask is just brilliant, and then... He mixed him off Legendary Hearts, but that Live in Italy album, pretty great. And there, like so many people who worked with him, it's easier to count on one hand the people who didn't come away with post-traumatic stress disorder, like a Fernando Saunders, right, Uh, than it is to count the people who were damaged by working with this guy. He was a brutal collaborator. Well, yes and no. I mean, there were certain people that, yeah, he didn't vibe with. He fired them, hired them and fired them quickly. He was mercurial for sure. And he could be very mean. I mean, he uh, that was one part of him. And certainly that was something I had to take into consideration. But the thing that sort of stunned me and maybe the like at a certain point became kind of the central problem of writing this book, which, you know, I ultimately resolved by not resolving it, was how this guy who was so famously mean was so deeply beloved by the people who he considered friends, family, colleagues, equals, not even equals, but just, you know, people that he felt kindly to. He was generous. He was um, loving. He was tender. He was partnered with Laurie Anderson for the last 20 years of Mm -hmm. his life. Somebody who, an artist who I've had incredible admiration for, for, you know, ever since she came on my radar when I was doing college radio and uh, I pulled out this seven inch of um, Oh Superman. And when they connected, I was like, wow, that kind of complicated (laughs) the idea of quote unquote Lou Reed in my head. Or the fact that he saved four or five decades worth of every Christmas card and postcard that that, uh, Mo Tucker ever sent him. Yes. 
Yes. And, you know, they were they were very, very close. And you know this, Jim, and you probably know this too, Greg, just from like writing biographies. You talk to a lot of people. Some people had bad experiences and have access to grind and other people are adoring maybe to a fault and can't see the darker side of the person um, they're talking about. But, you know, Reed had that in spades on both sides. And uh, I tried to talk to as many people as I could. And at the end of the day, you're like, well, how do I make these two sides of this persona fit into the story of one person? Mm -hmm. And I didn't. I kind of couldn't. No, you write that up top. You can't square these things. And you offer context, but you don't forgive. He was a raging alcoholic at times, which explains some behavior, perhaps. He he was, uh, I I think you give the laundry list, uh, fragile, dyslexic, possibly, uh, never quite clear, definitely depressed, I would say manic depressive, uh, conflicted in his bisexuality. (laughs) I mean, Lou was dealing with a lot, which doesn't forgive being a horrible person to some people. That was very hard to determine what was, and you use the name, Lenny Bruce, I would say more of a kind of catch skill shtick comedian at times right <laughs> um you know even a heavy young both. Man. yeah both mm. you know he played this mm. this catskill comedian right uh, don rickles you know what was that and what was genuine it's always impossible to tell with reed because there was that character he was playing you know it made it interesting that's for sure but it also and you probably you guys probably felt this too it's like you spent any amount of time really studying a person's life you sort of see that we all have mm-hmm. light and dark in us we all have things that we <laughs> would rather forget would not about, have in a book uh, yeah <laughs> would rather things not have you in a did book. Yeah. um back in the day and uh you know we nobody's written a biography about us but it um you know it i think it made me try as much as possible, even through his darker years, to empathize with where Reed was coming from, Mm. or at least to understand it, Mm. you know? Yeah, complicated doesn't even do it justice, right? When we come back, we'll talk about the important role that Lou Reed's partners over the years played in his music. That's coming up on Sound Opinions. Sometimes I feel so happy. Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island. Since 1988, Goose Island's been brewing beers in the spirit of Chicago. You can find IPAs, lemonade, shandy, and limited releases in-store or at one of Goose's venues in Chicago. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago's Beer. Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island. Since 1988, Goose Island has been brewing award-winning beers in Chicago that are inspired by this city. Take 312 Lemonade Shandy, Tropical Beer Hug Double IPA, and a rotating series of hazy IPAs only available in Chicago. Uh, you know, every time we go down to Goose Island, there's another one that they're pushing on us. That's right. You and know, they're all good. Absolutely. And uh, what supporters of, of musical culture, you know, in, in the city of Chicago and elsewhere, uh, if you go to a show in Chicago and you see that Goose Island uh, sign, you know, you know you're in good hands. Uh, they're music fans as well as great uh, beer makers at Goose Island. So we're really proud 
to be associated with them. The Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago's Beer. And we are back. This week, we're talking with Will Hermes about Lou Reed. Let's get back to the conversation. I like the way you bring his partners, his romantic partners, into the book. They're key parts of the book. Women, in general, uh, romantic partners get written out of so many biographies and so many tellings. You know, the Rolling Stones, I mean, the women in their lives played such a critical role in what they became, what they were reading, what they wrote about, what they obsessed about. Lou is the same way, and you make that very clear. I mean, these uh, his romantic partners get a lot of... You get their stories in here. Shelley Albin, the, his Syracuse University muse. Uh, Betty Kronstadt, who, you know, kind of the, the suburban gal, but kind of pulled him together, kind of was an anchor for him. First wife. The subject of Perfect Day, right? Rachel yeah. Humphreys, you know? Mm-hmm. More, more love to her in your book than I've read collectively in all the others because so little is known about Rachel. You know, a non-binary person kind of just, you know, floating through that world and then disappearing and Lou kind of checking her off and, and, and not at all acknowledging the role Rachel played in his life uh, later on in his life. And then Sylvia Morales pulling him together in the late, in the eighties. I mean, I, his business affairs were completely in a until Sylvia got there. And then, and then you mentioned Laurie. Well, well, and to be clear and fair, Greg, every artist deserves a private life. But Lou is putting these loves of his life in his albums. Oh, right. You know, name-checking them. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. On the Blue Mask. And, and, you know, this one goes out to Rachel on Coney Island. Baby, right, right, right. I'm a Coney Island baby now. Send this one out to Lou and Rachel. I'm all the kids. And yes, one ninety two. He's talking about it. And in my opinion, Will, you know, if the artist is talking about it, then it's, us journalists have a right to ask about it. Yeah. I mean, you know, if Shelley would just come back, it would be all right. right. And then he changed the name to Candy, which right. was the name of another real person who yeah. he didn't have a relationship with, as far as I could tell, but was, uh, you know, he kind of considered a muse, Candy Darling, yeah. um, the, the, the trans actress. But, you know, I just... It was clear to me that that some of his lovers, um, partners, were part of the story, and some of them were living, some of them were not, and uh, they were generous with sharing stories, some of them, and uh, that helped a lot, and without invading privacy too much, you want to tell the story of not just, you know, the person you're writing about, but also people who contributed. I mean, people say that Sylvia Morales saved his life. Mm-hmm. I heard that again and again and again. Not to underestimate the power of will it takes to get clean when you have an addiction. And Lou Reed had to do that on, on his own, ultimately. But uh, she was a big help. She pulled his business stuff together. Shelley Albin, uh, an exceptional individual, an artist to... Um, was very much, uh, very much a muse for a lot of the early mm-hmm, Velvet yeah. songs. Yeah. Um, and Rachel, who Lou immortalized in a lot of his songs, sometimes explicitly, like you literally hear him say Rachel at the end of Coney Island Baby, mm-hmm. an album which, uh, you know, 
uh, has a, a lot of songs that deal with his relationship with Rachel, as does uh, Street Hassle, as does, uh, you know, maybe Sally Can't Dance a little bit. Yeah. But I was able to connect with uh, members of uh, Rachel's family um, who shared shared photographs of, you know, Rachel growing up. And yeah, I mean, it, uh, it took a long time to find sources. And so I feel lucky <laughs> in as much as, you know, some of the time that this took was a little bit out of my hands, but, uh, you know, you take a lot of time on something and uh, sometimes new things come up, mm-hmm. like the archives, for instance, which yeah. didn't uh, become available until sort of the tail end of my writing process. Well, you know, lose sexuality. And again, it would be nobody's business if he didn't write about being gay, being bisexual, and being straight. You know, he's the, the perfect husband in some of the blue mask, right? You know, they're 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 setting up their house. You know, uh, with the ghost of Delmore Schwartz visiting him and Sylvia. Um, right. Oh, Delmore's always looming in the back. Delmore's mm-hmm. always the ghost. Always a somewhere. third. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, Lou would vacillate radically between horrible homophobic comments and talking about being gay or being bisexual. And you kind of let him off the hook. He didn't want to be a spokesman for anything ever, you note, right? Um, But when you think about what Bowie being out uh, meant to, you know, that kid in Idaho (laughs) who thinks he's the only gay kid in the world or she's the only gay kid, right? Um, talk about a life saved by rock and roll, a life saved by using the platform of uh, celebrity, for lack of a better word, to say to your audience, you are not alone, right? He could have made a difference. And, and even during the AIDS crisis, which you were there, you know, and I was there yep. in New York, I mean, walking the streets and running into friends or people you went to college with, and you're always hearing of another one gone. I mean, it was mm-hmm. a pall over our college years, you know, uh, our yep. youth um, that I don't think we've ever recovered from and not enough has been written about. Lou was silent until Halloween Parade on New York, really. Well, that's not entirely true. I mean, he gave uh, in the early years and really up through the 70s on occasion, not often, but on occasion, he did talk to certain journalists about being gay, about identifying as gay. He uses that word Mm -hmm. gay. He certainly I mean, he lived on Christopher Street. He was living blocks away from like the first hospital, as I note in the book, um, that was treating AIDS patients in uh, in the West Village. And it was a scary time. I remember it. And it was kind of like the early days of COVID. You know, there was not a lot known and you didn't really know how you would get it exactly. And if I get it, I'm going to die. And yes, and and if I get it, I'm going to die. And people did die. People were dying all over the place. Mm. And you know, as a, as an artist, um, somebody in the public spotlight, and really anybody in a deeply homophobic culture, and this still for all the strides made by the LGBTQ community, it is still a deeply homophobic culture. Yeah. And I don't, you know, I really can't pass judgment on someone for 
how they want to discuss their sexuality publicly, how they want to parse it, how they want to say, oh, I'm bisexual, or I identify as queer, I identify as this or that, or what have you. Um, that's a personal choice. And I don't feel that the anyone really needs to take that on. Lou, I think, just by being a model of integrity in certain ways, and certainly by writing songs that were lyrically open-ended, but, you know, if you knew you knew, if you felt it, you felt it. Yeah. Um, I think he made a statement, Michael Stipe, you know, he's one of the great yeah. queer artists of our time, who, who didn't, didn't did come not out come, for decades. Yeah. Who didn't <laughs> come out mold. for decades yeah. in the rock world, which mm-hmm. is, you know, I think, particularly homophobic. He said, you know, Reed was like the first great queer icon of the 21st century 30 years before it started, Mm -hmm. Um, which and I'm paraphrasing, but I just thought like that was a great quote. Mm -hmm. And it just made me say that, like, that's a part of the story I need to center, not to invade privacy, uh, but to because his queerness is it was a factor in his life. It was a factor in how he wrote. And it was a factor in how his art has been and continues to be received down the years. Yeah. So. No, I, a line like, no kind of love is better than others. You yeah. Know? I mean, and, it, yeah. I and mean, I, how, how, does it get any simpler, more succinct than that? Yeah, it's you beautiful. Know? Situations arise because of the weather. Kinds of love are better than others. You know, I would say this. Um, you know, I went to college in the '70s, and being out for anybody, let alone a, a performer, was taboo. You didn't do it. And eventually, I became friends with a couple of guys who did come out, uh, but very discreetly. And one of them was the one who pointed me to the song Candy Says Mm. and said how important that song was to his ability to understand who he was and that it was okay. And then, let me tell you, the Transformer album got passed around a lot in my uh, dorm wing. And, you know, people were studying that back cover, you know, like what's going on here, asking questions, and just becoming aware of that world, you know, through Lou Reed's music. So whatever Lou was saying publicly in interviews, et cetera, the music is, was still there. And I can tell you it had a, an impact on people who were, you know, A, didn't know about gay culture at all, or B, were gay but were afraid to come to grips with it in, in any kind of a setting. But they finally, you know, they heard somebody was writing songs about them, you know, that, that understood what the, what the world that they were living in. So it was um, right. pretty groundbreaking. And there were prob- there were other artists, I'm sure, but Lou was the one who sort of connected because, you know, he had Walk on the Wild Side and people were aware of him. He was very, it was very popular. I went to school at Marquette, and whenever he would come to Milwaukee, it was a huge crowd, you know, like he was getting rock star treatment in Milwaukee long before you know, that, that he was in other yeah, cities. Yeah, there were odd certain cities like yeah. Cleveland and Milwaukee right. that embraced him, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, this idea that, you know, that gender is fluid and sexuality is fluid and maybe it doesn't need to get pinned down. And of course, he was enough of an artist to know that sometimes the less you pin things down, the, you know, the more timeless the art becomes, even though Walk on the Wild Side was, you know, pretty straightforward in terms of the characters it presented. But, um, you know, that we live in a day and age now where, like, I mean, I think Personally, at this point, my album of the year is like the Boy Genius record. And mm. to see those women like performing in arenas, like I yeah. think selling out <laughs> yeah. Madison Square Garden and, you know, and just having queerness front and center is so beautiful. And that is something that, you know, you weren't seeing a lot of that mm-hmm. in the 70s and 80s. But there were like people who were pioneers. Bowie was one of them and, uh, and Lou certainly Although mm-hmm. Lou was less less popular than Bowie for sure, even though they yeah. kind of get like they were pals and Bowie produced Transformer and they, you know, kind of get lumped in together. But I have one scene in the book about Lou playing, you know, I think a run of shows at the bottom line, which, you know, is like few hundred seats, under a thousand, mm-hmm. certainly, right around the same time that uh, Bowie sold out three nights in Madison Square Garden. Yeah. So. That was instructive. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about uh, Lou's relationship with the press, Will. You you note the number of interviews where he just tortured his uh, <laughs> interviewers <laughs> and uh, how he would vacillate. You know, sometimes doing a couple in the same day, you know, something was black and then it was white in the next interview. But, but he and Bangs in particular, all right? And you would ask me about this when you were writing the book. You know, yeah. Lester said horrible, unforgivable things uh, rooted in a 70s uh, ignorance, right, about Rachel, which stung Lou deeply. But Lou also said horrible things about Lester. <laughs> it was a two-way horrible street. However, Kale told me Lester Bangs wrote about the Velvet Underground as if he was a member of the band. Nobody ever explained it to the world at large as well as Lester. And I mean, you know, saying this band is the most important act in the history of rock and roll, more than the Rolling Stones, more than the Beatles. I mean, this is the future. And yet Lou, Lou seemed to crave the appreciation of critics. You know, Lester's the top of the list, right? Mm. And he just never seemed to want, and I've seen this with Patti Smith too. Um, You know, she writes out people who were key to introducing her to the world. Richard Meltzer, Nick Tasha's, they wrote lyrics for her, right? You know, they don't exist anymore. But Lou didn't want to give this guy any credit and yet in a, in a large way you wonder if he would have fallen completely off the radar without Lester having given him you know continually beating people over the head saying this guy's the genius you're an idiot if you don't listen to him yeah i mean lester's writing at its best you know this better than anyone probably that uh it it was beautiful and he saw in the velvets and in lou you know the greatness that helped inspire me to write this book. But he, you know, he was also like uh, the intensity of his fandom, you know, was uh, (laughs) it was not healthy, ultimately. And, uh, you know, and I think he, uh, you know, he got close to Lou. They both had uh, addictive personalities. (laughs) 
<laughs> they, let's let's say shared shared wares yeah. um, over uh, the years, but uh, but I think you know indulged Lou in unhealthy a, passions together. <laughs> yeah, but but Lou was a writer. I mean, Lou was a writer. Um, he read. You know, he he was dyslexic by his own account, um, as well as uh, partner accounts, mm. and he uh, you know he was stung by critics. He did read stuff and. A lot of people misquoted him. A lot of people came in just wanting to get a rise out of him, certainly in later years. Like, that was the shtick. You know, you were a journalist. You'd go in and like, all right, Lou Reed will now berate me and I will transcribe (laughs) the berating. Yeah. um, yeah, yeah. And self-flagellation. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The the best interview I ever had with him was he was just going on and on about guitar pedals, which nobody in the universe cares about, not even guitar player. And I finally said, Lou, if this is all you want to talk about, I got to go. I got other things to do. And then all of a sudden, he was the puppy dog. Oh, ask me what you want to ask me. Mm-hmm. But he, I'm sure he respected you as a smart dude. And that was always like a, a yardstick. You know, he'd yeah. get a read on somebody. And if you didn't pass the test, then he'd cut it short um, before the journalist would cut it short. But there were people who he connected with. And he yeah. there are good interviews out there. When we come back, we dive deeper into Lou's music. That's coming up on Sound Opinions. Sound Opinions is sponsored by Factor. Factor's ready-to-eat meal delivery takes the stress out of meal planning and sets you up for success. Skip the grocery store, prep work, and cooking fatigue. Instead, get chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. With over 35 meals to choose from per week, including options like keto, calorie smart, vegan and veggie, and more, plus over 55 weekly add-ons, you'll have a ton of nutritious and flavorful options. Factor now offers additional options like breakfast, smoothies, juices, snacks, and more to keep you going no matter what's on the schedule. When things get hectic, Factor is flexible. Change your order up every week or pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. So if you want to try Factor and make your life easier, here's what you need to do. Head to factormeals.com slash soundops50 and use code soundops50 to get 50% off. That's code soundops50 at factormeals.com slash soundops50 to get 50% off. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And we are back, and we are talking with Will Hermes about an artist all three of us think is one of the most important of all time. Let's get back to the conversation. I think we got to address the music at least a little bit. Um, so I, I want to focus on the fact that a lot of this music seems to have second and third lives. And it's, you know, the cliche is, you know, a band ahead of its time. And Lou Reed, in a sense, ahead of his time as well with some of his solo work. You know, why, why did people catch up with Lou later on? It seemed like, you know, the validation for like a Berlin album. 
in the 2000s. I mean, it only took like, what, 30, 40 years for yeah. that album to sort of <laughs> register. It's like, oh, that was a pretty good piece of work. It was or really Metal kind of, Machine Music. Metal Machine Music becomes gets a third life. Ain't going to happen to Lulu, though, Will. You're a little too kind to Lulu. Perfect I... Day has its hallelujah moment, right? Le- yeah. Leonard Cohen, yeah. hallelujah, you know, oh, gets yeah. a third, second and third life. Oh. Perfect Day, mm-hmm. Lou Reed's song suddenly becomes, it's everywhere for about the last two decades, really three decades. Yeah. Sweet Jane, like Boilerplate, like mm-hmm. everybody knows those riffs, you know, was never a hit. Is that why Lou still fascinates people? Because there's very few people who sold had that few hits that people seem to still be <laughs> fascinated by um, decades later. Yeah, well, I think it's both the art and the persona, and certainly his whole approach, like his mission statement, if you will, from Jump, which is like, I want to write rock and roll songs that have lyrics that are equal to great literature or that try to do what great literature does. Um, And I think anybody who's interested in the art of songwriting and the art of like how you move somebody with words inside of music and they're aiming high... Like, you're going to wind up at Lou Reed at some mm. point. Um, not that he was always successful, but I think that kind of approach resonated. And I also think that, like, the division between writing about characters that are not necessarily you, but that might be you, and mm. that sort of um, fluidity, <laughs> to go back <laughs> to that word, of having songs be partly a character, partly you, which is, of course, like, Maybe every novel and work of fiction ever written, you know, yeah, right. is mm-hmm. partly uh, the writer's experience and partly invention. And I think there's a greater understanding of that, you know, also an understanding of uh, of pop as a construct and not like, oh, man, that's just not real. That's fake. Like mm-hmm. that whole idea of like the gold standard, the what the crits call mm. rockist. I don't even yeah. know if that's a term anymore. Authenticity. Like, yeah, all those yes, like it's got to be the singer. Words, yeah. yeah, the singer-songwriter experience of somebody putting down their emotions, uh, their personal emotions on paper um, and delivering them like that's the most authentic expression of song. Like, well, no, that's kind of limiting, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, really? I can only write about myself? Nobody else? Right. That's, that's what gave us right, emo. The imag- yeah. <laughs> no, it, it truly is liberating and uh, inspiring, uh, without a doubt. So Jim and I are, you know, people who have listened to, to the show pretty much know that Lou Reed is, like, way up there for us in terms of the Velvets. Very important, you know. Yeah. Uh, despite their many, many, many flaws, we love them, right? Oh, uh, nice. Jim's so, showing uh, his tattoo. So Will, yeah. Hermes, Will Hermes, though, is... Uh, I think this might be your first time appearance on Sound Opinions, which I can't believe. But uh, I, I don't know how we missed talking to you about uh, Love Goes to Buildings we, on Fire. But. We had to wait 10 years for this yeah. one. So it's, uh, you know, it, it's time for Will to uh, weigh in here. Yeah. Um, let's say somebody's like getting tired of like, these guys go on and on about Lou Reed and the Velvet yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't I've heard quite enough. Get it. I don't care. But here we have the author of Lou Reed, the King of New York. And you're talking to that listener who is skeptical. 
about all of this. Where do you point that listener to, okay, check this record out or this song out and tell me what you think of Lou Reed after that? Hmm. I know it's really you an know, impossible question, right? There are a lot of there are a lot of personas in the book that uh, make up the person of Lou Reed, and there are a lot of songs that reflect what he did great. So maybe can I? I'll pick two. Okay, um, please do instead of please one. Do. Um, I mean. Certainly, I love all the Velvets albums. The first one was a stunner. My personal favorite is the third, which is just called The Velvet Underground. Mm -hmm. I would probably say, I'll be your mirror. I be your mirror, reflect what you are. In case you don't know, I be the wind, the rain and the sunset, the light on your door to show that you're home. When you think the night has in your mind, that inside you twisted and um, As a ballad of such great simplicity, that just to me might be my favorite Lou Reed ballad, although there are like a whole bunch of other ones. And, uh, you know, mm -hmm. that, now, now, I'm, now I'm saying like, well, maybe I need to say three. So oh, take because, as many as you'd like. Because yeah, because you have heroin, which I think as a character study, as an avant-garde noise piece, as a as a kind of meta blues song, and as a character study of somebody who is enthrall, if that's the right word, um, with using heroin, but not necessarily advocating it, just kind of talking about experiences um, with this drug and maybe trying to understand why somebody uh, would turn to opiates uh, to relieve their pain, um, a narrative that never gets old. Um, to sadly, feel like Jesus' son. Yeah, that is a, is a benchmark work. And Sister Ray is a, is a really long, nutty, thrilling jam, really, that uh, sort of tells a story, kind of a kooky story with a whole lot of different characters. But it's really uh, uh, an example of something that, like, I loved about the Velvets and I don't think it's pointed out enough that, man, those guys could play. When you really, mm -hmm. like, let them mm -hmm. loose and they, would, they could jam, the version of Sister Ray on the uh, album, the second album, mm -hmm. is, uh, is great. But the live tape versions that you can find are also pretty good. And the live recordings of the Velvet Underground beyond the albums. Yeah. Thank you. Released. Thank you, Robert Quine. <laughs> yes. Who added to that. Yeah. There's not there's not a lot that survived. Certainly not no. the great like the Grateful Dead. Yeah. But mm -hmm. um but people who really want to get the Velvets, like go definitely go past the studio albums. Um, Live 1969 is a standard release, but also the Matrix tapes and the Quine tapes, which you can find online. Mm -hmm. I'll give you a fourth, uh, Will. You write in the book at one point that Candy says may have been Lou's best song.
Candy says yeah, would be my second choice for uh, the great, the great Lou Reed ballads. Mm. Yeah. So simple, yeah. so beautiful. You know the backstory; it deepens. But even if you don't know the backstory, it's right. just you know universal. Okay, but here's here's an even more fun question, fellow brother rock critic. <laughs> Give me a song or two that you would tell the, the unindoctrinated young listener to, by all means, never listen to, because it may ruin Lou Reed for you for the rest of your life. And I'll give you what I'm thinking. I, I was like, no one should ever listen to I Want to Be Black Again, ever, period. Yeah, <laughs> that, that song is problematic. That song is problematic. Least. Yeah. Um, but uh, intentionally so, don't you think? I mean, clearly. No, that, that's yeah. for design. Yeah. That's describing something to him that yeah. you don't know. Yeah, that, you know, that's that's Lou trying to actually do social commentary at a level that most people missed. Mm-hmm. And uh probably just was not well done. Although, legend has it that the, that the great um, African-American broadcaster, Frankie Crocker, really liked that song and it cracked him up. Um, <laughs> so, so there you go. But <laughs> I, would go. Just say, I, would say, I would say Kicks mm. is pretty yeah. disturbing. Like, that yeah. song should have a trigger warning. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the original rapper, um, oh, God, yes. rap song, W-R-A-P-P-E-R, <laughs> While it has some like oh, some man. fun wordplay, is just like you know, stick to your you know. And my I red know. joystick, that's a really bad one too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as far as puns go, not one of his best. Yeah, yikes! I think the original rapper might have been the first time I thought, you know, he's trying to hop on a trend here. You know, I'm the original rapper. Well, okay, maybe you are, but this is a really bad song. Yeah. Uh, that was a right. most, huge, and, huge misstep. I, I want to throw uh, in one more for greatest hits, though. Uh, I think Street Hassle is one of his greatest compositions. Um, oh, I ranks with I, any you know with the Velvet Underground level of output. I so agree, and not and not just for the Bruce the uncredited Bruce Springsteen cameo. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I mean, it's kind of cool that he got Bruce to do that bit about uh, you know Born to Run and all that stuff. It was very it was fascinating. But I, yeah, I just think great, the, great story. It's great it's, story. A, it's an amazing piece of storytelling in a very ambitious framework, you know. Uh, and I'm also glad that you pointed out the fact that Sister Ray live is like an absolute beast. I mean, those versions, I've had arguments with people like, what's the best version of Sister Ray? And they're all, you know, this 38-minute version they performed at the Matrix in 1969 <laughs> with the Velvets, you know, it's kind of like... It's like you're you're parsing the Grateful Dead catalog or something like that. It's really an amazing piece of exactly. music. Exactly. It's like it's their dark star and of mm-hmm. course, you know, the Dead and uh the Velvet Underground supposedly famously hated each yeah. other, but probably cuz they had a little bit in common. Right. So. Okay, so let's end, you know, we've kept you on a long time, Will, and thanks for hanging with us. You did a, a ton of research. Was there something that kind of like sticks with you as like, wow, I had no idea. This this is really cool. I, I, you know, you uncovered something that surprised you or just fascinated you that you hadn't anticipated would come across. Well, we already talked about the fan mail. Yeah. So I'll say that getting to see some letters that Lou Reed had written just there were a number of them, but I'll uh, zero in on uh 
uh, we uh, three remember faxes. I guess faxes yeah, still exist, yeah, yeah, yeah. but uh, faxes were a, were a pre-internet mode of communication that uh, were cutting edge at one point. Mm-hmm. And um, when the Velvet Underground reunited briefly, too briefly, in the 90s, um, it uh, crashed and burned, maybe unsurprisingly. And it, there was a trail of faxes about the ending of that uh, mm-hmm. reunion at the New York Public Library. And seeing those were, they were kind of a sad discovery because I just thought that, you know, that band was so great that Greg, John Greg Kale has a story was, about that, Will. Greg mm-hmm. has a story about those faxes. Well, I was in John Kale's apartment when a fax from Lou came in at the moment that he was telling John to go Go. <laughs> That's Whoa, literally dude, what he said. Go. Five years on public radio. Dear, dear Good John. For Greg. Dear That's John. How go. Mean it was. Dear John. Go f yourself. Uh, you know. Uh, and and Kale's, Kale got just kind of looked at him. He goes, "We have said things that no two people should ever say to each other." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the ultimate dear John letter. Oh my God. <laughs> So anyway, your uh, those those breakup letters, uh, those breakup faxes were were. I, I would have loved to have seen them all. I mean, it must have been like amazing. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Well, there's one that John talks about in his memoir that I don't think exists anymore. But he talks about, if I'm remembering it correctly, the nine page screed that he wrote to Lou. Um, you know, basically saying while you mm-hmm. were making holes in your arm. You know, Mo was trying to raise a family of four, five kids, however many she had at that time, and uh, you know, basically go yourself. Mm-hmm. Right, darlings on the tugboat, and uh, yeah, he didn't. He didn't. Yeah. Well, that's why I said he could treat his collaborators really poorly. Yeah. Well, this, it's the story of a life, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, as as Mo would say, like it's you know you. Family, your family, families fight. Mm-hmm. Tina Weymouth said that recently in uh, the Talking Heads um, yeah. uh, sort of press conferences yeah. about uh, the band breaking up and being on the outs for many years, now getting back together for the re-release of Stop Making Sense. So, bands are family, and family yeah. fight. Thankfully, uh, maybe you know our faxes don't get discovered by biographers. Well, and sometimes <laughs> you got to put up with the aunt or uncle raving at the kitchen table. I. It breaks my heart, Will, to think of, of some of Mo Tucker's political views these days. My God. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. yeah. I, um, you know, people, people's views change. Yeah. Maybe they continue to change. So I've, I have no idea where she's at right now at this exact moment. So mm-hmm. Might have evolved back towards mm-hmm. something. Uh, Who knows? Not conspiracy theory. Well, we have been talking to Will Hermes, the author of the epic new book, Lou Reed, The King of New York. Thanks for being on Sound Opinions, Will. Thanks, gentlemen. It's a privilege, and uh, it's been a joy. That wraps up our discussion about Lou Reed, and now we want to hear from you. Do you have a favorite Lou song or story? Leave us a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org, with your thoughts, and we'll share them on the show. Greg, what do we have next week? Next week, Jim, we revisit our conversation with author Erin Osman about her excellent book on John Prine, one of our favorites. And don't forget to check out our bonus podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. 
The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to Sound Opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, and our associate producer, Sol Delgadillo. Our Columbia College intern is Max Hatlam, and our social media consultant is Katie Cott. 